Chapter Two of the Book of Camping and Woodcraft, a guidebook for those who travel in the wilderness. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White. The Book of Camping and Woodcraft, a guidebook for those who travel in the wilderness, by Horace Keppert. Chapter Two: The Sportsman's Clothing. For ordinary camping trips, an old business suit will do. But be sure that the buttons are securely sewn and that the cloth is not worn thin. It is somewhat embarrassing to come back home, as a friend of mine once did, with a starring legend of Triple X family flower emblazoned on the seat of his trousers. It may be well to take along a pair of overalls. They are workmanlike and win the respect of country folk men who dwell in the woods the year round are practical fellows who despise frills and ostentation many a tenderfoot has had to pay double prices for everything and has been well laughed at in the bargain because he sported a big bowie knife or a fake cowboy hat-band when one is preparing for a long hard trip it pays to give some heed to the clothing question as a rule the conventional hunting costumes of the shops are as unfit for the wilderness as they are for the gymnasium they are designed for bird hunters who carry heavy loads of shotgun shells and little else and who can tumble into a civilized bed at night canvas and corduroy are the materials most used these cloths wear well are generally of fairly good color for the purpose are not easily soiled and they do not collect burrs but this is about all the good that can be said of them canvas is too stiff for athletic movements a poor protection against cold and not so comfortable in any weather as wool corduroy wears like iron but it is too heavy for hot days not nearly so warm in cold weather as its weight of woolen goods and it is notoriously heavy and hard to dry when it has been soaked through neither canvas nor corduroy are good absorbents of perspiration nor do they let it evaporate freely both of them are too noisy for still hunting even when they are not rasping against grass and underbrush there is a swish-swash of the trousers at every step they are also likely to chafe the wearer a sportsman's clothing should be strong soft light warm for its weight of inconspicuous color and easy to dry after a wetting it should be self-ventilating and of such material as absorbs the moisture from the body it should fit so as not to chafe and should be roomy enough to give one's limbs free play permitting him to be active and agile the quality of one's underwear is of more importance than his outer garments it should be of pure soft wool throughout regardless of the season cotton or silk are clammy and unhealthful when one perspires freely as he is sure to do when living an active life out of doors even in midwinter and they chill the skin when one is drenched by a shower or when he rests after exertion the air of the forest is often damp and chilly especially at night and in the early morning hours and you must expect to get a ducking now and then and to be exposed to a keen wind when topping a ridge after a hard climb at such times you are likely to catch a bad cold or sow the seeds of rheumatism if your underclothing is of any other material than wool thick underwear is not recommended even for winter it is better to have a spare undershirt of a size larger than what one commonly wears 
and to double up in cold weather or on frosty nights. Two thin shirts worn together are warmer than a thick one weighing as much as both. This is because there is a layer of warm air between them. The more air contained in a garment, other things being equal, the warmer it is. One soon realizes this when he spreads a blanket on the hard ground and lies down on it, thus pressing out the confined air. Drawers should be loose around the thighs and knees, but snug in the crotch. Remember that woolen goods will shrink in washing unless the work is skillfully done, so do not get a snug fit at the start. It is unwise to carry more changes of underwear, handkerchiefs, etc., than one can comfortably get along with. They will all have to be washed anyway, and so long as spare clean ones remain, no man is going to bother about washing the others. This means an accumulation of soiled clothes, which is a nuisance of the first magnitude. Overshirts should be loose at the neck, a size larger than one ordinarily wears, for they will surely shrink, and a tight collar is not to be tolerated. The collars should be wide if the shirts are to be used in cold weather, so that they can be turned up and tight around the neck. Gray is the best color, the dark blue of soldiers' or firemen's shirts being too conspicuous for hunters. It is well to sew two small pockets on the shirt just below where the collarbone comes. These are to receive the watch and compass which should fit snugly so as not to flop out when one stoops over. If the watch is carried in the fob pocket of the trousers, it will be unhandy to get at on account of the belt, and it is more likely to be injured when one wades out of his depth or gets a spill in shallow water. A neckerchief should be worn, preferably of silk, because that is easy to wash and dry out. It protects the neck from sunburn, keeps it warm in cold weather, and is useful to tie over the hat and ears when the wind is high or the frost nips keenly. In case of cramps, it is a good thing to tie over the stomach. A bright color, white or red especially, should be avoided if one expects to do any hunting. A heavy coat is a nuisance in the woods. It would only be worn as a come-and-go garment when one is traveling to and from the wilderness and around camp in the chill of the morning and evening. For the latter purpose, a heavy jersey or sweater is much better, besides being more comfortable to sleep in and easier to dry out. It should be of gray or light tan color, and all wool, of course. The objections to a sweater are that it is easily torn or picked out by brush. It attracts burrs almost as a magnet does iron filings, and it soaks through in a smart shower. But if a coat of thin, very closely woven khaki, duck's back, or gabardine, large enough to wear over the sweater, is taken along, the perfection of comfort in all kinds of weather is attained. Such a coat is rainproof, sheds burrs, and keeps out not only the wind, but the fine, dust-like snow which, on a windy day in winter, drives through the air, forces itself into every pore of a woolen fabric, and, melting from the heat of the body, soaks the garment through and through. With the above combination, one is fixed for any kind of weather. On hot days, his overshirt and trousers will be all the outer clothing he will want. If it threatens rain, he will add the coat. Mornings and evenings, or on cold, dry days, he will substitute the sweater. And when it is both cold and windy, or cold and wet, all three will be worn. 
in any case the coat is merely considered as a thin soft rain-proof and wind-proof but self-ventilating skin the heat-giving and sweat-absorbing part of the clothing being worn underneath to combine the two in one garment would defeat the purpose for it would be clumsy and would not dry out quickly a free outlet for the moisture from the body or a thick absorbent of it that can be taken off and dried out quickly is a prime essential of health and comfort in all climates and at no time more so than when the mercury stands far below zero for those who prefer a single heavy coat rather than tolerate the bunchy feeling of several layers of different materials i would recommend for steady cold weather a mackinaw coat of the best obtainable quality such as sheds a light rain poor ones soak up water like a sponge do not seek to keep your legs dry by wearing waterproof material nothing but rubber or pantasote will shed the water when you forge through wet underbrush and they would wet you most uncomfortably by giving no vent to perspiration take your wetting and dry out when you get back to camp strong firmly woven woolen trousers or knickers are best for the woods in cold weather and khaki or duck's back for warm weather the color of a woodsman's clothing should be as near invisibility as possible unless he ranges through a country infested with fools with guns in which case a flaming red headdress may be advisable by the way it is bad practice when one is calling turkeys to hide in the brush or behind a tree sit right out in the open so long as you are motionless the turkey will not recognize you as a human being whereas a man attracted by your calling will the same rule holds good when one is on a deer stand or holding down a log on a runway as for the inconspicuous clothing take a hint from the deer and the rabbit from the protective plumage of grouse and woodcock most shades of cloth used by men's clothing are darker than they should be for hunting what seems nearby to be a light brown for instance looks quite dark in the woods the light browns greens and drabs are indistinguishable from each other at a few rods distance the color of withered fern is good so are some of the lighter shades of covert cloth such as top coats are made of also the yellowish green khaki white except amid snow and red are the most glaring colors in the woods an ideal combination would be a model of alternate splotches of brown or drab and light gray which at a short distance in the woods would blend with the tree trunks and would not look entirely opaque many men who think themselves properly dressed for still hunting and are so in the main spoil it all by a flopping hat a bright neckerchief a glittering buckle or rasping covering for their legs leggings should be of woolen cloth preferably of loden which is waterproof those of canvas pantasote or leather are too noisy when a man is in the woods to see what is going on in them he should move as quietly and make himself as unnoticeable as possible whether he carries a gun or not leggings should not be fastened with buckles hooks or springs but should lace through large eyelets or fasten with a puttee strap buckles and hooks catch in the grass and glitter in the sunlight besides being hard to manage when covered with mud or ice hooks are easily bent out of shape springs are too stiff for pedestrians many recommend cloth puttees instead of leggings a puttee of the kind i mean is a piece of stout woolen cloth four or five inches wide and fully nine feet long 
to be wrapped spirally around the leg, starting from the ankle and winding up to the knee, overlapping an inch or two at a turn, and fastened at the top by tapes sewn on like horse bandages. It is claimed that nothing else so well supports the veins of the legs in marching, that they are more comfortable and noiseless than ordinary leggings, and that they afford better protection against venomous snakes, as the serpent's fangs are not so likely to penetrate the comparatively loose folds of cloth. Puttees should be specially woven with selvage edges on both sides, for if merely hemmed, they will soon fray at the edges. It is not advisable to wear them in a thickety country. Nothing in a woodsman's clothing is of more importance than his foot-dressing. The two unpardonable sins of a soldier are a rusty rifle and sore feet, so they should be regarded by us campers. The shoes and stockings should fit snugly so as not to chafe from friction, but they should on no account be tight enough to bind. The shoes should be well broken in before starting. High-topped hunting boots that lace up the leg are well enough for engineers and stockmen, but for hunters or others who travel in the wilderness, either afoot or afloat, they are much too heavy and clumsy. A pair of strong shoes with medium soles and bellows tongues, not over seven inches high, nor weighing an ounce more than two and a half pounds to the pair, will do for ordinary wear. They should be pliable both in soles and uppers. No one can walk well in boots with thick, stiff soles. Hobnails are recommended only for fishermen and mountaineers. They should be of soft iron, as steel ones slip on the rocks. Their heads should be large and square, not cone-shaped. A few hobnails along the edges of the soles and heels will suffice, those of most importance being the two on either side of the ball of the foot. If the middle of the sole is studded with them, they are likely to hurt the feet. The leather should be well soaked before they are driven in. It is not a bad plan to drive a few protruding nails in the heels and soles of one's shoes in a particular pattern so that one can infallibly recognize his own footprints when back-trailing. This will also assist one's companions if they should have occasion to search for him. The best shoelaces are made from rawhide belt lacing, cut in strips and hardened at the ends by slightly roasting them in the fire. Shoes to be worn in cool weather may well be waterproofed, but for warm weather they should not, for waterproof leather heats the feet, and so, by the way, do rubber soles. If one has much marching to do, he had better take his chances of getting his feet wet now and then, than to keep them overheated all the time, and consequently tender. An excellent Norwegian recipe for waterproofing leather is this. Boil together two parts pine tar and three parts cod liver oil. Soak the leather in the hot mixture, rubbing in while hot. It will make boots waterproof and will keep them soft for months, in spite of repeated wettings. For canoeing, still hunting, and for long marches in the dry season, as well as for use around camp, wear either thick moccasins or light moccasin shoes. The latter should not weigh over one and a half pounds to the pair. The importance of going lightly shod when one is to do much tramping is not always appreciated. Let me show you what it means. Suppose that a man in fair training can carry on his back a weight of forty pounds for ten miles on good roads without excessive fatigue. Now shift that load from his back and fasten half of it on each foot. How far will he go? You see the difference between carrying on your back and lifting with your feet. Very well. 
a pair of hunting shoes of conventional store pattern weighs about three pounds a pair of moose-hide moccasins weighs eleven ounces in ten miles there are twenty one thousand one hundred twenty average paces it follows that a ten-mile tramp in the big shoes means lifting some eight tons more footgear than if one wore moccasins nor is that all the moccasins are soft and pliable as gloves the shoes are stiff clumsy and likely to blister the feet if your feet are too tender at first for moccasins add insoles of birch bark or the dried inner bark of red cedar after a few days the feet will toughen the tendons will learn to do their proper work without crutches and you will be able to travel farther faster more noiselessly and with less exertion than in any kind of boots or shoes this too in rough country i have often gone tender-footed from a year's office work and have travelled in moccasins for weeks over flinty ozark hills through cane brakes through cypress swamps where the sharp little immature knees are hidden under the needles over unballasted railroad tracks at night and in other rough places and enjoyed nothing more than the lightness and ease of my footwear after one's feet have become accustomed to this most rational of all covering they become almost like hands feeling their way and avoiding obstacles as though gifted with a special sense they can bend freely one can climb in moccasins as in nothing else so long as they are dry he can cross narrow logs like a cat and pass in safety along treacherous slopes where thick-soled shoes might bring him swiftly to grief moccasined feet feel the dry sticks underneath and glide softly over the tell-tales without cracking them they do not stick fast in mud one can swim with them as if he were barefoot it is rarely indeed that one hears of a man spraining his ankle when wearing the indian footgear moccasins should be of moose hide or better still of caribou elk hide is the next choice deerskin is too thin hard on the feet for that reason and soon wears out the hide should be indian tanned and honest engine at that that is to say not tanned with bark or chemicals in which case unless of caribou hide they would shrink and dry hard after a wetting but made of the raw hide its fibres thoroughly broken up by a plentiful expenditure of elbow grease the skin softened by rubbing into it the brains of the animal and then smoked so that it will dry without shrinking and can be made as pliable as before by a little rubbing in the hands moccasins to be used in a prickly pear or cactus country must be sold with rawhide ordinary moccasins tanned by the above process which properly is not tanning at all are only pleasant to wear in dry weather but they are always a great comfort in a canoe or around camp and are almost indispensable for still hunting or snowshoeing they weigh so little take up so little room in the pack and are so delightfully easy on the feet that a pair should be in every camper's outfit at night they are the best foot warmers that one could wish and they will be appreciated when one must get up and move about outside the tent in a mountainous region that is heavily timbered moccasins are too slippery for use after the leaves fall oil tanned shoe packs are better than moccasins for wet weather when kept well greased with tallow oil softens them too much they are waterproof and much more comfortable than rubber shoes shanks made by stripping the hide from the hind legs of moose caribou or elk without splitting it using the bend of the hock for the heel of the boot 
and sewing up the toe part, when properly tanned, are impervious to water and snow, and are beyond comparison the warmest and driest of footwear for high latitudes. Caribou or reindeer skin makes the best. It is remarkably tough, moderately elastic, warmer for its weight than any other material, more impervious to wind, drier than any other kind of leather, and it has the singular property of tightening when wet, or at least not stretching like all other skins. Shanks are sometimes made of green hide, but only for temporary purposes, as they soon wear out. When tanned, they are very durable. The hide should be tanned with bark, as alum destroys its good qualities. The hair should be left on and worn outside, the shanks being carefully dried away from the fire after using, or the hair will drop out. Never hang your moccasins before the fire to dry. They would shrink too small for your feet and become almost as stiff and hard as horn. Scrape off as much moisture as you can. Stuff them full of dry grass or some other elastic, absorbent substance and hang them in a current of air where they can dry slowly. Then rub them soft. Rubber boots I never wear, save when working in the marshes or for a short time in muddy, sloppy weather around a cabin or fixed camp. I would rather get wet from water than from perspiration. Canvas wading shoes with eyelets at the toes to let the water run out or old shoes with slits cut in them, not wide enough to let in gravel, are good to use when fishing. A Macintosh or other long-tailed coat is as out of place in the woods as an umbrella on shipboard. An oilskin slicker topped off by a sow-western may be all right in a boat or over decoys, on horseback or when driving. But anything of this sort is too heavy, too draggling, too hot, too awkward to shoot from when one is afoot and the brush soon tears it. For a woodsman, an army poncho is better, either of rubber or, much more durable, a pantasote. It makes a good ground sheet at night. The infantry size is 45 by 72 inches, the cavalry 72 by 84, the latter being large enough to serve as a shelter, but heavy to tote around. A waterproof poncho weighing only one pound can be made from thin enameled cloth, at a cost of about forty cents, but it is easily torn. The best headgear for general wear is a Stetson hat of army pattern. It stands rain and keeps its shape under a good deal of abuse. The natural smoke color of the felt is best. The brim should be wide enough to keep rain and snow from falling down the back of one's neck. Remove the leather sweatband and substitute one of flannel, which is far more comfortable in all weathers, and sticks well to one's head so that the hat is not easily knocked off by wind or boughs. In the fall or winter, take also a knitted wool cap that can be drawn down over the ears. It makes a good nightcap which you will need on cold nights when sleeping in the open or under canvas. For very hot weather, a pith helmet with yellow lining is better than a hat. If a head net is taken, get one long enough to button under the coat and dye the bobbinet black for black is easier to see through than white or colored stuff. A head net is somewhat of a nuisance, particularly when you want to smoke or spit. But in some localities, especially in the far north, it is almost indispensable at times on account of the thick clouds of mosquitoes. It is also useful in hunting wild bees. 
a pair of buckskin gloves or gauntlets pliable and not too thick should be carried by any man who goes fresh from the office to the woods rowing and chopping will quickly blister tender hands woolen gloves as a protection from cold are too easily wet through and then are little better than none but in very cold weather it is best to wear woolen ones under loose fur mittens the latter being hung from the neck by strings the belt if one is worn should be loose a belt drawn tightly enough to hold up much weight may cause rupture suspenders should be worn if the trousers are heavy a cartridge belt should be worn cowboy fashion sagging well down on the hips woven ones are more comfortable than leather and do not cause vertigris to form on the cartridges as any leather belt will do no matter how well it may be greased loops closed at the bottom collect dirt and grit a leather belt with loops long enough to cover the bullets is best for a sandy region if there is a big shiny buckle wear it to the rear for sunlight glittering on it will scare away game when traveling in foreign lands where the climate is different from our own dress after the custom of the country in nearly all wild regions there are civilized residents who can give the desired pointers end of chapter two recording by james k white chula vista